Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Christmas from the Beginning of Time. So let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Weary World Rejoices. Some time ago, Dr. Homer Dixon was the director of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Center for Peace and Conflict Studies, which is located on the campus of the University of Toronto. And I have before me two statements made by Professor Homer Dixon, which in his estimation are an accurate reflection of the world in which we live. So here's the first. He said, never in human history have the differences of wealth and opportunity among us been so great. Thanks to the spread of television, today's disadvantaged know better than ever what they're missing. And thanks to the spread of cheap, portable, and powerful technologies of violence, they also have a greater capacity than ever to harm the targets of their anger. Now, whether terrorism is always the result of economic disadvantage, well, that is surely a debatable point. But here's something that's indisputably true. Cheap and powerful technologies of violence are available to many, and in fact, they have destabilized the world. So here's Professor Homer Dixon's second quote. He said, the world really seems to be aflame. There are conflicts and zones of anarchy and distress over the planet. There is now this sense that our leaders have lost control and don't know where they're going. Now, those two statements were actually made before the rise of ISIS. It was almost a prophetic statement. So today, according to the UN, there are usually over 40 conflicts and wars going on at the same time. Most of the time, we hear little about it, for it happens in parts of the world that we don't typically pay attention to. But to be truthful, the world has always been at war. Is it worse today, or are we simply hearing more about it? Well, I don't know. Certainly, the power of weapons available is horribly frightening. Is this a prelude to the end times? Well, again, I don't know. What I do know is that the heart of sin loves war. I do know that Jesus said that until he comes again, there will be wars and rumors of wars, and that's clearly been the case. But it's Christmas, and it's time again to proclaim that Jesus is the great Prince of Peace and, and to sing as we always do about peace on earth. Unless you wonder about the incongruity of that thought, I want to remind you that the proclamation of peace on earth is not some naive hope for those who don't understand the situation. It is the faithful, bold, and insightful proclamation of those who understand the situation best of all. Jesus coming to earth marks a moment in which we have a certain sign that wars are coming to an end and that perfect justice and perfect government is now an unstoppable reality. And that's what Christmas is. Now, we've been discussing Christmas from the beginning of time and have come to the book of Isaiah. You know, in my last message, I had us look at Isaiah 7, which predicted the virgin birth as a sign to the world. Today, I want to take you two chapters later in which Isaiah presses the issue further from a sign to a child that will rule the world. But before I do, let me give you a bit of background. During Isaiah's time, Israel was divided into two separate and very different nations, Israel to the north and Judah with its capital of Jerusalem to the south. The two sides did not trust each other. They had a completely different political and religious system, and there had been wars in the past, and there was a great deal of tension in the time of Isaiah. 
Next, let me tell you a little bit about Isaiah the man. Isaiah the prophet had an amazing career in which he prophesied for about 40 years from 740 B.C. until about 700 B.C. His own ministry spanned the reign of four different kings of Judah. Isaiah spoke to the spiritual and political and national life of his nation. He condemned wickedness. He encouraged faith in God. Remarkably, he predicted the defeat of Israel by the Assyrians, the defeat of Judah by the Babylonians. He predicted the rise of the Persian Empire and even named its ruler, Cyrus the Great, named him by name 200 years before he lived. But most impressively, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, that he would suffer terribly and die for the sins of the world, and in his words, he would be crushed for our iniquities. But Isaiah never wavered in his certainty that the Messiah would rule the earth forever. The prophecy that we read in Isaiah chapter 9 happened during the reign of King Ahaz, who was then in danger of being defeated and not just defeated. His enemies vowed to kill both him and all his children. What makes this so significant is that King Ahaz of Judah was in fact a direct descendant of King David. If the Syrians and Israel attacked Judah and succeeded in their plans, which seemed very likely at the time, then the line of kings on David's throne would come to an end. Then there would be no Messiah and no Prince of Peace to rule forever. So Isaiah 9 begins with a promise. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. I hope you see that word gloom. See, that was the prevailing mood in Judah at that time. Gloom, hopelessness, the worst of all possible scenarios. The world as we know it was coming to an end, and God's promises seemed to be failing, and all of our hope was just a pipe dream. So that's the beginning of Isaiah 9. So let's look at Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, here's a little secret to understanding Isaiah. He frequently uses the past tense when he's speaking about the future. He does this to give us the idea that when God has spoken about the future, it is as sure as reading yesterday's newspaper. The former time in verse 1 refers to what God has planned for Israel in the future. He brings her into contempt. Now, one verse before this, in chapter 8, verse 22, Isaiah says, And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And that, says Isaiah, is the future of Israel. So what Isaiah is talking about is that Assyria, the great superpower of the day, was coming And in fact, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali were the first regions to suffer under the Assyrian invasion. They were devastated, or as Isaiah predicts, they will be brought into contempt. And then Isaiah says, you think that the world is coming to an end, but let me talk about the latter time. This very place of devastation will one day be made glorious. But how? Well, let's read Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You know, it takes 700 years for that prophecy to be fulfilled. But 700 years later, Matthew would tell about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and this is how he described it. I'm reading Matthew 4, verses 13 to 17. 
It says, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Isaiah was able to see beyond the tension and anxiety of his day. In fact, here's what he saw. He saw that a land oppressed by war and false religions, depravity and despair, was going to have an unusual awakening in the future, a shining of a light in a land of gloom. That's the Christmas story. It says that light came into a world of gloom, a world of war, a world that had suffered terribly, a world of sin. There in that dark place called Zebulun and Naphtali, later called Galilee, that very place where Israel ceased to be a nation, where her light was extinguished, there a great light has shone. And when Jesus began his public ministry, it was exactly in the very first place where Israel ceased to be a nation in that same place that Isaiah predicted, it's there that his ministry began. And that means that the coming of Jesus is supposed to symbolize undying hope in a world that has lost all hope. And that's why Christmas is so hopeful. You know, in our hemisphere, the 25th of December falls at what is the darkest time of the year, and that in itself is a very symbol of hope. It depicts darkness at its deepest, and it's there in the center of our gloom that God has sent his Savior. You know, imagine how that came true for Zebulun and Naphtali, the land that was lost in false teaching and idolatry. In this place is where Jesus performed some of his greatest miracles. He cleansed the lepers, and he fed the poor, and he healed the sick, and he cast out demons, and he raised the dead, and he preached that the kingdom of God was among them. That's what Isaiah saw in that region that would later be called Galilee. You know, yes, says Isaiah, the situation of the land is so horrible in my day that the 10 northern tribes called Israel would be completely destroyed by the Assyrians. The gloom would be overwhelming, but in this very place that the greatest light that humanity ever has seen, this would appear. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Christmas is more than family traditions, gifts, and festive music. Christmas is a promise kept. God promised to send a Savior, and Christmas is the fulfillment of that pledge. Christmas is the assurance that faith in the promise of God will not be disappointed. For this reason, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the teaching of God's Word, and your dependable support enables the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada to fulfill that mission. As 2022 draws to a close, many listeners consider a special gift as an expression of their support for faithful, trustworthy Bible teaching. This year, our goal is to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will allow Back to the Bible Canada to enter 2023 prepared to respond to the increasing need and opportunity to engage the world around us with solid Bible teaching you can trust. To give a gift to the year-end goal, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Isaiah 9 begins with a word of encouragement. 
The people, says Isaiah, who have walked in darkness will one day see a great light. Now let's read Isaiah 9, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now again, remember that very often Isaiah speaks in the past tense when describing a future event. So let's read it that way. God, in this place of gloom, right there, you will one day multiply this nation that is now being defeated. You're you're going to increase the joy of this nation that's now in utter despair. They will be ecstatic with joy, like a victorious army rather than the defeated army that they now are. But how can that happen? How can gloom be parted? So let me move forward to verse 6. Isaiah, now smiling broadly, answers the question. Verse 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now that's an interesting combination. To us a child is born. Now that's probably not that striking. Children are born all the time. And so he adds, to us a son is given. Notice the second line. He replaces the term child with son and the term born with the term given. The idea is that the son is more than the product of natural birth. The son is a gift from God to Israel. I mean, that's why that thought in Isaiah 9, verse 6 is in direct reference to the thought in Isaiah 7, 14. A virgin shall conceive, a son is given. Let's keep reading to the last part of verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, there's always a great deal of argument among Hebrew scholars as to whether there should be four names or five that are given to the Messiah. Now, without entering into that debate, let me treat the list as five names. I'm going to leave it to others to decide whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. But for our purposes, when Isaiah names the child, uh, the one born of the virgin, the one given as a gift from God, the one who ends the gloom of war and disease and Satan's rule and sin's dominion. He gives him five descriptive names. Here then is the first, wonderful. Now, I have no doubt that many of you who have children said that about your baby when he or she was born. And probably, if your kids are now teenagers, none of you are saying that. So when you read the baby will be called wonderful, that doesn't mean that much to you. But in the Hebrew language, the phrase wonderful doesn't mean what we mean. It means beyond understanding. Do you remember a man named Manoah in the Bible? This man had a wife who was barren, and the angel of God appeared to her. It sounds a bit like the Christmas story, doesn't it? And he announced to her that she would bear a son and that this son would be a Nazarite. That is, he would be dedicated to God all his life. He would never cut his hair. He would never drink alcohol. He would never touch anything that was unclean. And yeah, you guessed it, that boy was Samson. And so fast forward, Manoah asks the angel what his name is so that when his words come true, that they might honor him. And here's the response. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And then the angel ascends to heaven, and Manoah falls on his face to the ground. And the Bible says, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Now, without going into all the details, the name Wonderful is beyond understanding and is a name which is reserved for God. God's titles are beyond comprehension. So the Old Testament plays on that. For instance, Psalm 105 verse 2 says, sing to him, sing praises to him, Tell of all his wondrous works. Same word there. 
And then the rest of Psalm 105 proclaims his wonders, his choosing of Abraham, his making of a covenant with his people, his bringing Israel out of Egypt, and so on. So the name wonderful means that his greatness is beyond human understanding, but also that he is the author of astonishing deeds. That may be a reference to his ability to perform miracles. Wow, that's quite a baby. This is God himself come to us. Now the second name, Counselor. Now, when you hear that name, you shouldn't be thinking about a therapist. Listen to Psalm 33, verses 11 and 12. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In other words, the nation who has God as its counselor cannot fail. In Isaiah 46, verse 11, God says, My counsel shall stand. In other words, when God directs anyone's affairs, a nation or a people, his counsel is always successful. The third name, Mighty God. For all people who say, I believe in a Messiah, I just don't believe he's God, you've not paid attention. The Hebrew term here is El Gabor, God the Mighty One. The basic root of that word, Gabor, is almost always associated with warfare, battle, that is, one who is strong and prevails over his enemies in the fight. Mighty warriors were men of exploits and heroes and champions among the armed forces. So the Bible tells of David's three mighty men and then of the 70. And so most often the term mighty man refers to a male at the height of his power. But we do know that when the word Gabor gets attached to God, it means that he has unlimited power that he is the ultimate champion in battle. No weapon raised against him can prevail. Now comes the fourth title, Everlasting Father. Now I stop here because if you know your Bible well, those words may have always grated your ears just a bit. We'd say Christ is not the Father, he's the Son. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And since that's so, how is it that Isaiah can call this baby the everlasting Father? And the answer has to do with the way Isaiah expresses himself in the Hebrew. The term everlasting is to be understood in the sense of being eternal. What Isaiah has in mind is that this child is the Father of eternity. In order to understand this, let me take you to Hebrews 1 verse 2. There the writer of Hebrews says, In these last days that is he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has made the world. See, the making or the creating of the world is an action done by the one who preceded the world, and as the Bible teaches us, has existed from all eternity. See, in the Bible, the idea of eternal creator is always put together with the right of ownership. The creator owns or possesses the creation. It's his. But the term father is a tender term, a term of compassion. It's a term of love, a term of care. It's a term of concern. So if the child to be born is in fact the father of eternity, Isaiah surely combines two things. The child that is born is the possessor of the ages, and the eternal provider for his children. And then finally, fifthly, Isaiah now brings the matter to a climax. He also says this child is the Prince of Peace. I know that you and I have repeated those words often, and they do seem beautiful, but I wonder if you, like me, have ever wondered why Isaiah didn't call him the King of Peace, because Kings seem to have a higher ranking than princes. I mean, why is he called the Prince of Peace? 
What is it that we're to learn about this designation? See, the term prince is a very interesting term. In the plural, it refers to leaders or chieftains. But in the singular, and that's how Isaiah uses it here, it refers to either military commanders or even to captains on the field of battle or or leaders or a king's military. See, in this case, Isaiah pictures the child to be born as the supreme military commander of the army of the Lord. So if you put all of that together, you can understand now why Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, there can be no end to this one who leads the entire earth in this battle for peace and in this battle for righteousness. He is the commander of the hosts of the army of the Lord. So then, who is this child to be given to us? You know, it was Mark Lowry in that beautiful song, Mary, Did You Know, that expressed it so well. He wrote, Mary, did you know that when you kissed your little baby, you have kissed the face of God? Indeed, that's exactly what John tells us in 1 John. He says, the things that we've seen with our eyes, which our hands have handled, this we proclaim to you concerning the Word of God. In other words, we have handled not just the Word of God. We have handled God himself. We've touched him. Isaiah says, that's what will be given to us. A child will be given. A son will be given. He is God's gift to the human race. This is the wonder of the Christmas story. John, thanks again for your message today. And I have a question for you. And I think it's an important one in this season. What do we say to people or how do we encourage people who find Christmas anything but a joyful season? Yeah, and there are those who find it a very trying season. You know, and I do want to, you know, share that, you know, as a pastor, my heart just goes out to individuals who are alone this time of the year or who remember significant loss at this time of the year or have events that they can't really look forward to and yet have to be a part of. And so, you know, I want to say that it can be a very difficult time of year. But for those of us who struggle with that, maybe it helps to remember that the first Christmas was a very, very difficult event. Everything about it speaks about inconvenience and loss. And yet the scripture teaches us also that in a world of sorrow, in a world where everything's going sideways and nothing is as it should be, God sent his son and a great light is shone. So if nothing else, take this into your Christmas, that no matter how bad it is, there is great hope. God loves you, has sent his son for you. And so grasp a hold of that. Thanks, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, I'm Dr. John Newfell from Back to the Bible Canada. We all know of promises that were made and not kept. At times, unforeseen circumstances arose, making it impossible to keep our word. And at other times, we may have made a promise that seemed caring and generous, but in the end, the promises fell to the ground. But God is not as we are, and he never speaks about the future without fulfilling his word down to the smallest detail. And Christmas is a remarkable story of the promise-keeping God. God promised that a savior would come, one whose death on the cross would break the power of the curse of sin, 
putting Satan's reign to an end. This Christmas, may we celebrate and marvel over our God, the one and only God who can always be trusted to remain faithful. I hope you find joy and peace this Christmas. Merry Christmas.